Good morning, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. Now, if you guys ever feel like me and Kyle just fake how excited we are about Sundays, we really don't. And let me tell you how I know this. I was thinking about it this weekend. When we were at the last church we were at, Kyle was on staff. I was not on staff. I was just like volunteer or church attender. And I was still like super excited about Sunday every single Sunday. And I'm like, happy Sunday. And we still like on my family feed, like with my parents and my brother and Kyle, we still will be like, happy Sunday, everybody. And you'd think like being a pastor's family where we've all like worked in ministry at some point, if not entirety of lives, that we would get sick of Sundays in church. Because Sundays are technically a work day. I mean, it is a long day, and I do fall asleep pretty quick after church on Sundays. Not going to lie. We basically eat the fastest thing we can eat on Sundays after church and then fall down and sleep for a couple, a couple weekends ago, we slept for four hours after church. We all, all of us did. We all needed it, like every single one in our family. It was a long weekend. But even before that, we were uh, just attending churches. We weren't on staff. We weren't even really volunteering yet because we were just looking for a church to get plugged into. And we still loved Sundays. It was a little weird because we're used to, like, serving or helping or being on staff or something like that. But we had this season where we were just kind of resting being in church and going to church. And then I, start, I volunteered for the communion team. And we would take this little caddy and we would roll it around the church. It was a big church. And then we'd, like, fill, we'd do a squeegee thing to fill up the grape. Grape juice, this was before COVID. We'd fill up the grape juice, and we'd open all of the little wafer things and put it, and we'd get all of it ready. And that was my job at that church, was just to roll around the little cart and squeegee the, <laughs> the grapes, the grape juice. Not the actual grapes. I wasn't like hand. That would have been legit, but no. It wasn't that much work. And then when I was a kid, I loved Sundays. I was not the kid you dragged kicking and screaming to church. I loved a Sunday. So when we're like giddy about church on Sundays, it's actually really genuine. Like Kyle said about our last church, it was like working at Disney World every day. <laughs> we really believe in the local church. We believe in the people that make it up and we love it and we love community gathering together to worship God all as one body. That doesn't negate the things that happen through the week. That's great, but there's something about everything we've done through the week and everything we're preparing to do during the week that we just love gathering it all in here together and loving God together and loving each other together all at once to get pumped back up to go back out into the world and do ministry. So we do love Sunday. So happy Sunday, everybody. I hope you're as glad to be here as I am. We are going to finish up our last uh, message in the series, Fully Devoted, that we've been in for about two months now. Um, and this one is going to be called Building Our Life on Jesus. We're going to talk about an ancient Christian practice that can really help us in our life today. I'm going to show you what it looks like and give you some practicals on how to get it started in your own life. But this is really the next step. We've talked about all of these spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices and why we need to be emotionally healthy to be spiritually mature. We've talked about all these things. Today is the culmination of that. Okay, now what do I do about it? How do I get there? What does that look like? We've tried to help um, all of us begin a new phase of our spiritual journey together. We want to be able to um, be on this spiritual journey together, but start a new phase and continue growing. So we've talked so far about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, 
We've talked about discovering your identity and calling. We've talked about getting past your past. We've talked about the importance of community with God's people. We've talked about forgiving as we have been forgiven. And last week, we talked about walking through endings and beginnings with God. So today's message is intended to bring all of our previous talks together, everything that we've learned so far together, and see where we can go from here. Because we don't just want to end a series and have zero impact on your life. That's not the point of us preparing messages and studying and getting up here and talking about it so that it will have no impact. Now, I don't care if you remember it later. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that exciting. But I do want it to have some sort of impact, even if you can't point back to why it had that impact. I want there to be some sort of change that happens in our hearts. So one of the main reasons, I'm thinking about this a lot lately, one of the main reasons people turn away from Christianity, there's many. One of the main ones, though, is there's so many so-called rules. And I'm sure many of you have felt that at some time. Well, the Ten Commandments is just a list of don't, 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 don't. God's just about no, 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 don't do this, don't do that. Um, he is, uh, it just feels like rules and checklists and to-do lists and so much and so overwhelming. But many of these rules lead to constraint, they lead to legalism, and then it squeezes the joy out of us. And so we don't even want to do any of it anymore because there's no point. It's not making us happy. The world's lie is we have to be happy all the time. Uh, it's not bringing us any sort of fulfillment because we've squeezed the joy out of it because we've squeezed the spirit out of it. So associating Christian faith with rules seems counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. Can you give me my um, little notebook there that's open with all the pink writing in it? Sorry, I forgot to grab that out here. Thank you. I went to a conference this weekend, and man, was it good. And I don't know why more of you ladies didn't come with us, because it was really, really good. So mark your calendars for the last weekend of February next year, because you want to come. I am not a fan of women's conferences normally. They're way too girly. They really overuse your fearfully and wonderfully made in a girly context. And I just am kind of over it personally. But this one is good stuff. It is, and it has the girly stuff if you like girly stuff, but it's not overdone to where you feel like you're choked with flowers and sparkles at the same time. It's wonderful, let me tell you. It was so, so good, and so I'm going to be referencing some of this in here. So, just give me a second to find which <laughs> Yeah, it's still live online through Monday. Yes. Okay, so... Jenny Allen, the one who created this, um, and she's also an author, said, okay, she said this, listen, it's a little harsh, I actually read this to Kyle last night, he's like, that should go on Facebook, and then I told him what the quote was again, he's like, no, it's too harsh to put on Facebook, I don't like the way she worded it, I'm going to read it to you just how she said it, she said, some of you need to grow up. She said, you think it's legalistic to be disciplined, or you're dabbling in sin and you don't think it's a big deal, or you think you can still make everything the way you want it to be. Some of you need to grow up. And I, you know, I took it in my notes, so I'm taking it for myself too, but I think a lot more than just me need to hear that. 
Some of us need to grow up. We're dabbling in things that we know is not the righteousness of God. And we don't think it's a big deal. Well, it's not the biggest deal. It's not the it's just a 20-minute TV show. I mean, it's not the not that big of a deal. You know, what whatever. Oh, am I stepping on toes? Am I so, okay? Kyle said I'm stepping on toes. Okay. Distracted me. All right. But there's this spiritual formation practice called developing a rule of life. And don't get caught up on the rule part. I'm going to explain that. It actually has a different meaning than like a rule, like a law. And it's about creating discipline in our life. And we think being disciplined equals legalism. Anyone disciplined is legalistic. Everyone type A is legalistic. Now, I'm type A, and I do have a tendency towards legalism. But I know that it's a temptation of mine, and I know that it's a struggle of mine. But it doesn't mean I need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just be completely undisciplined and reckless with everything. I still need to be disciplined to follow the righteous paths of God that he leads me on, to study his word, to pray every day. I need to discipline myself to be obedient to the things God's asked me to do. Otherwise, I won't be able to hear the spirit when he wants to do something spontaneous because I haven't ever touched in with the Father. I haven't ever connected with Jesus in union. So I have to be disciplined to connect with God to be able to hear from God when he's moving. Does that make sense? So we're not legalistic to be disciplined. We need to be able to be disciplined. But there's this thing within the Christian faith called developing a rule of life. And it is not meant to constrain us. It actually liberates us. Now, I've got another piece. Now, Guys, the second speaker there, I was fangirling a little bit because I didn't know he was going to be there. And he's like one of my favorite authors. You can ask Karen. I turned around to Karen. I was like, oh, my goodness. And Melissa, ah! I was like, I didn't know he was going to be here. I've like read his books. I watch all his podcasts, all of his teachings. You may or may not have heard some of the teachings um, here because I adapt his teachings a lot. Um, his name is John Mark Comer. And he... Used to pastor my brother's church out in Portland. He just transitioned pastors there. But um, he talked about how the practicing the habits of Jesus and going through spiritual disciplines. We've talked a lot about this in the past year or so. How Jesus went away to lonely places for silence and solitude, right? The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. That's great. Wonderful. He just got baptized. This is my son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Now the Spirit's going to lead you to be tempted in the wilderness without food or water for 40 days. Congratulations. I love you so much. That is what happened. Okay, so God, God, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. He went through silence and solitude. He prayed to the Father all the time. He practiced Sabbath regularly, as was the Jewish custom. He participated in those customs and those traditions and those um, spiritual disciplines that they had. And yet the habits that we get from Jesus or how Eugene Peterson in the message translation of the Bible calls it, he calls it God's rhythms of grace, God's unforced rhythms of grace, the rhythms you don't have to think about it as discipline if you don't want to. You can think about it as a rhythm of grace, the grace God gives us to live in these healthy rhythms. They're repetitive. They're routine. They're in and out, but they're rhythms of grace that he gives us. He doesn't give us these habits just to be these habits. He doesn't give us these habits to constrain us. The habits that he gives us and encourages us to do in these rhythms of grace is to keep us from doing more. We don't have to do more than just the rhythms of grace he's given us. It's not constraining. It's not rules for the sake of rules and fencing for the sake of keeping us in. 
it's a guide, it's rhythm, it's sheet music for creating and living within something beautiful so you don't have to do more. Do this and nothing else matters is what he's saying. Do this and nothing else matters. So it is a rule, so it but it has the purpose of infusing joy rather than squeezing it out. So we call it a rule of life. Don't be intimidated again by that word rule. The word comes from an ancient Greek word that means trellis. Does anyone have a trellis at their home or at the side of their house? You're growing vines and berries, and I don't know what all you do besides vines and grapes on trellises. I would really, I love vines. They're beautiful. But if I grew one, it would be one of those that eats my house up probably Um, because I don't know what I'm doing. So a trellis is a tool that enables a grapevine to get off the ground and then be able to grow upward instead of like growing out or being stifled or being stumped. It makes it be more fruitful and more productive. So in the same way, a rule of life is meant to be a trellis that helps us get up off the ground so we can become more fruitful and abide in the vine, that we can abide in Jesus and become more fruitful spiritually. So our focus for this message is taking a small step to start to develop a personal rule of life, to center your life around the love of God. That's what we're meant to do, to center our life around the love of God. That's the trellis. And that we abide in that vine as our source of life and that we can get up off the ground and be fruitful. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. And later in one of the epistles it says, that they know that you are a disciple because of the fruit that you produce. We are not producing any healthy, godly, righteous, spiritual fruit. How is anyone supposed to know who God is, what our relationship with him is, and what the standard is that he sets for his people? How does anyone know if we are not fruitful? We're just a vine eating up a house. <laughs> We're just a vine clogging up the grass. We're not producing any fruit to show what the life in us really is all about. When most people reflect on their relationship with God, what we see is compartmentalization. Has anyone ever heard of the book, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? Or women have spaghetti brains, men have waffle brains. Has anyone heard that analogy? So the waffle brain is you got all these little squares. They're in compartments. If they are in this compartment, they don't know any other compartments exist at the moment. I am in football compartment. And so did someone say something to me? I don't know. I am in football. If it didn't have anything to do with football compartment, I'm here. Women, on the other hand, and this is very true of me, and it gets confusing sometimes, especially when all my brain cells are currently going to the baby. It's even worse. Like it's just one noodle. It's not multiple spaghetti. But they're all rounded up and blended together and spiraled around. And so every compartment or noodle is all blended together, and it all runs together. So I can be talking about feeding the dog, and then it reminds me about the time Moxie put my phone in the dog water bowl, and then it reminds me about how we need to turn my phone into insurance, and we never get insurance except for on the phone because Moxie disrupts it all the time. My phone, she does. And then I think, man, I'm giving way too much screen time to my daughter. What is going to happen? Maybe that's why she's slow to speaking. No, but actually Miss Rachel on YouTube really teaches a lot of great speech therapy, and that's how she learns most of her things. Some of you know Miss Rachel on YouTube. Yeah, okay, she's awesome, okay? She is, like, teaching my daughter so many things. And then you think, oh, Moxie just sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star last night. And it just all flows together. Whereas Kyle's, like, <laughs> literally last night, 
I was in bed getting my words out because women have a certain allotment of words a day that's much higher than men. And this scientific fact. And I was getting my words out at night because I'd been at a conference letting other people get their words out at me all day. So I was getting my words out to Kyle, and I was like, I don't know what the word for what I'm feeling is that God is doing in my life. So let me just explain to you. She's like, okay, I can give you a word. I can give you a word for it. So I go, tell him all these things that God's doing in my life this weekend. And he's like, okay, okay. I'm like, so what's the word? What word are you going to, you said you'd give me a word. He's like, that was way too much words. I don't know where, where we're going anymore. I'm ready to go to bed. So that was our great uh, loving marriage spiritual talk that we had last night. It was fantastic. No, it was really good, but he didn't have a word. He just ended up picking one of my words and said, that's a good one. So thank you. Uh, anyway, where was I? Oh, spaghetti brains. See? And you guys see it in my preaching sometimes, too. Now, I don't know why I was, oh, compartmentalization. So back to waffle brains. We do this in our spiritual life a lot of times. We compartmentalize our spiritual life from our home life, from our family life, from our work life, from my hobbies, from my self-care, extended family, in-laws, nuclear family, uh, husband versus children. Like, it's all separated and compartmentalized into all of these different areas of life. We get that if any of you are ever into, like, New Year's resolutions or goal planning, they all tell you, okay, you need to have ten goals for the year. You're going to have one in finance, one in fitness, one in wellness, one in spiritual. Like, it's all compartmentalized. And when I went and did my goals, I asked God about it this year. That was smart. First time I've been like, God, tell me what the goal should be. And all of them were, like, spiritual that blend into my work and family life. I was like, oh, look at that. Spaghetti brains work out pretty good sometimes. Before God, however, every aspect of our lives is equally sacred. Every aspect of our lives is equally sacred. It's not the church category and the pray in my closet category and the read my Bible category and then everything else in their own category. Everything is sacred. The work you do in your secular workplace is sacred. Parenting your children is sacred. Loving your spouse is sacred. Being the friend for someone is sacred. Caring for your adult and aging parents is sacred. It's all sacred. Everything before God is seen as sacred. And what we're missing is an intentional plan to live this out. So how do we start seeing that everything is sacred and everything can be given to God? The background to this message is a recognition that powerful External forces exist in the culture to cut us off from communion, abiding, and remaining with Jesus. And I'm getting out of my notes again here. I don't know whose idea this was because bending down repeatedly as a pregnant lady isn't super fun. But these are some good notes. Okay. So this pastor was talking about Psalm 23. They all were at the conference. But um, he talked about God's spread. I will lay a table before you in the presence of your enemy from Psalm 23. He says, our best defense against sin is to sit with Jesus and his word daily and not stop until you've tasted his goodness. So it's not just the discipline of doing it, but don't stop until you've met God there. The more you take taste of his goodness the less you want to sin. The enemy monopolizes on our perceived hunger pains. What we think are the hunger pangs are the cravings 
what we think we need, what we think we're craving, what we think we want, what we think will satisfy us, the enemy monopolizes on that. Say, no, you just need to go get chocolate ice cream instead. No, you just need to look up porn instead. No, you just need to fill in the blank. No, your marriage will be fixed if you have another kid. Kids make it harder, guys, okay? When you add parenting into the mix, there's a whole other big old thing to argue about right there. It doesn't fix us. If Jesus Christ cannot satisfy us, nothing else can. And nothing else will. So we have to seek satisfaction and fulfillment in Jesus Christ and tasting and seeing his goodness. He gave this illustration. He says, imagine your favorite meal from your favorite restaurant. If you just think of what your favorite restaurant in the world is or wherever you've been. Your favorite restaurant, what is your favorite thing to get there? I love street tacos, so that's what I was thinking about. So good. And God prepares it perfectly for you, the chef of heaven. Has he ever referred to that in the Bible? Chef of heaven has made you the best street tacos known to man. The steak is cooked perfectly. It's not chewy or tough. It's tender and flavorful. You got your street tacos out. And God lays it out before you. I've laid out a banquet before you. This is a spread that will satisfy you more than anything else because it's from me. And I know what you need. I know what you like. I know what you want. And then you're like, all right, God, just, just one second. Just one second. I'm sorry. Then you go out back behind the restaurant into the dumpster and you start digging through to find something to eat for dinner. And that's what we do every time we push aside spending time with God and go somewhere else to find satisfaction, whether it's a relationship with someone. If we're not satisfied in who we are, and I've had to be repentant of this in my own relationship, I'll put unneeded expectations on Kyle and what he should be doing as my godly husband and leader of this home to fulfill me as his wife. I'm supposed to find satisfaction in God. If I expect that of him, that's unfair to him, and it will not satisfy me, and it separates me from God. And then it trickles out into my kids, and it trickles out into my other relationships. And it builds resentment and bitterness in my heart. Because I'm expecting from another human or another thing or a food item or entertainment to satisfy and fulfill me and cheer me up and fix me when God's the only one who can do that. These are distractions from the world. Behind these distractions, these are seductions, and they pull us away from Christ. And the Bible says that they are demonic, evil powers. You know, that same guy, I did not realize I would be referring to this weekend so much, but so much of it just fit what I was going to talk about today. He said, Jesus isn't going to win. Jesus isn't winning Jesus has already won. When we approach him, are we coming from a place of failure or victory? When we think about our relationship with God, do we think we, we're more familiar with the word failure or are we more familiar with the word victory? And I'm got to admit, I'm more familiar with the word failure. I'm like, man, I forgot to pray today or I fell asleep while I was reading my Bible or, you know, whatever the case may be, and I just feel failure. Jesus has already won the victory. It's are we going to be on his side at the end, the winning side or not? So he said this, and I love this. I will remember it always. He said, anything else the enemy does from here on out is just him being a sore loser. 
because he's already lost. If Jesus is already win, the enemy has already lost. So now everything he does is just him being a sore loser. So are we going to let that bother us? Or are we going to know that we operate from a place of victory? The challenge is to resist the beast. That's what the book of Revelation describes this problem as. It requires a radical solution. Simply committing ourselves to spiritual disciplines or trying harder is not enough. It says, be still. Calm down. Stop your striving and know that I'm God. It doesn't say try harder, do more. It says the unforced rhythms of grace. Stop, be still, and know God. At the same time, within us is our own fallen flesh, our own evil nature, and it's naturally resisting God's will at all times. Our tendency is to want to do what we want, not God's will, right? We end up using God as a means to an end to get what we want instead of asking him, what do you want? Can you do a heart transplant on me so that my desires are now your desires? Not, not what I want, but what you want. Let me want that. Let me want your desires. For this reason, why we're talking about this today, it's to introduce us to this I know I keep saying, like, you're going to talk about rule of life, but I'm really wanting to get to the why and why it's important and how it works. It's not just some random ancient liturgical thing to do. There's an importance to it, and we see it throughout church history in the Bible. So a rule of life finds its roots in the men and women who they withdrew from society as hermits. They went into the desert in the, I think, um, third to fifth centuries to seek God the Roman emperor had made Christianity um, legal in the Roman Empire at this time. They went out to the desert, and they became known as the desert mothers and fathers. And all they did was seek God. They wanted to free themselves from all of the worldliness around them. They didn't want to keep going back to the dumpster and be tempted by the dumpsters. They wanted to be full surrounded by the feast that God prepared for them. So they went to a wilderness to do that. Guys, they didn't even have smartphones or Netflix. And they had to go to a desert to get away from worldliness. And we have it at the tip of our finger. My two-year-old daughter already recognizes the Netflix logo. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I said that out loud. (sighs) They wanted to free themselves from the worldliness found both inside and outside of the church. The church is starting to look more and more like the world instead of us being set apart from it. If we don't look different than the world, why would they want to have anything to do with us or this Jesus we talk about? The world already isn't satisfying them. The world already is feeding them dumpster trash. If we're not showing them something different and something better and a different way of living and something worth sacrificing for, that's what Gen Z is looking for, something worth sacrificing for. Something worth being passionate about and on fire for. What's worth that? And if we don't show them something that's worth that, what's the point? Why would they want to have anything to do with Christianity known as judgmental people or the church known for rules and hypocrisy? We're not known for being like Jesus, whose loving kindness and goodness follow us all the days of our lives. We're known for hypocrisy and judgment. We're known for what we are against, not what we are for. And we can stand firm and hold to our standards, but we should be known more for what we are for 
Jesus and his way of living and his lifestyle and the culture that he wanted to bring to this world as an upside-down kingdom. That we flip the world upside down not on what we're against but on what we're for that is so backwards and foreign to this world. And that's what we're to be known for but we're not offering that. They wanted to truly find God. So these desert mothers and fathers, they wanted to really find God and bring him back into the church of So they didn't just go to the desert and live in the desert and die in the desert. They went to the desert. They lived there for years. They starved themselves of the world and the distractions. And then they brought Jesus back with them. You know, we get so excited about revival, and I am excited about it as much as anyone, and I am hungry for it as much as anyone. But the point of it isn't just to get a spiritual pep talk. The point of it is not more pats on the back or a spiritual high or some sort of experience that we get to endure and then reflect on until we die. The point of revival is to be set on fire to take the fire out into the world. That's what the point of revival is. That's why we want to have this worship night because, you know, someone else said, they compared it to uh, chasing a wave, surfing. Waves are really, really, when you see the wave, it's super easy to miss. But when you see the wave, your one job is to paddle like your life depends on catching that wave. So we're doing a worship night. That's us paddling like our life depends on it. And we know it's a busy day, and it's been a long weekend, and it is a lot to come to church two times in one day, even though like 10 years ago we came to church like five times a week. But if you're hungry for the wave, paddle like your life depends on it. And it has nothing to do with how well the worship team is going to play. We did not do an extra practice for this. Technology may mess up. But you know what? It's about your heart and wanting God and desiring God and paddling like your life depends on it to catch the wave. Why not for a spiritual high? Not for what you expect revival to look like like it's looked before. But for God to pour out his love on you and set your heart on fire, being surrounded by his love, built up on this trellis, so that you can take it out and bear fruit to the world around you. That's how they know you're a Jesus follower. That's how they know that you are his disciple. When we get sparked to take out a fire, that's what revival is for. It's not so we can sit with it and nurture the fire and have kindling and be warm ourselves. It's to spread it. And it's to give it away. So these desert mothers and fathers eventually formed communities. They organized their daily life around agreed upon plan of, consist, of consisting of work, prayer, and the study of scripture. They knew that in order to grow, so they didn't just go into a desert and then just pray on their face all day. They knew in order to grow and mature spiritually, they needed one another. They weren't isolated. They had community. And they needed a thoughtful, conscious, and purposeful plan they were disciplined, not legalistic. They called this plan a rule of life. John 15, 4 through 5, Jesus said this, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. We're not isolated. We're not cut off. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. How many hours, I'm asking myself the same thing, how many hours do we spend on our phone scrolling? Your phone will tell you if you have screen time tracking turned on. How many hours are we spending on that or turning channels on the TV versus spending time with God? Whether that's in our day-to-day -day going about life and surrendering all of our thoughts to God through it, it doesn't mean, well, if I spent five hours on my phone today, I've got to spend at least five and a half with God. That's not the gauge. That's comparison 
That's compartmentalism. That's not what we're going for. But are we giving thoughts to God? If there was a time tracker for our thoughts going to God, what would that read? Remain in me and I will remain in you. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I am them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The early church in Acts 2, I've been studying this a lot lately. They gathered around a rule of life together with a particular practices that enabled them to prefer the love of Christ above all things. So I just want you to read this verse with me. I'm not sure if it'll be on the screen or not. It probably won't be. If you can turn in your Bible or your phone, this is the good type of screen time tracking, to Acts 2. I would love for you to mark up what you think might be in their rule of life, their practices that they did on a regular basis. Acts 2, starting in verse 40. Acts 2, 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Notice they didn't build the numbers. God built the numbers when they dedicated themselves to a rule of life. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing meals, Lord's Supper, prayer, miraculous signs and wonders, meeting together publicly, sharing everything they had, meeting together privately. All of these things it says that they did with great joy and generosity. Each local church has a trellis or a rule of life, whether they've intended to have it that way or not. God's raised up various local churches in different cities and communities, and it looks a little bit different there to there, but mostly we're all meant to have a trellis built around the Great Commission in some way, shape, or form, because that's what Jesus told us to do. He already gave us our mission for us. So we finally commit to that one structure, a trellis or a rule that we believe will help us grow upward and deeper in Jesus. So here, you may have heard these before, know God. And what that looks like as a rule of life for our church body as one coming together, many parts coming together as one, we gather to worship together on Sunday. Corporate worship. It talks about in Acts 2, they gathered together in the temple. We want to know God and press into God and hear more about God and know who he is. There are other ways to get to know God. That's for your personal rule of life. This is us as a church body. Find freedom to build authentic community in small groups, practicing confession and bringing healing to one another. We have our upward relationship with God. We have our side-to-side relationship with God. We can provide a small group. You have to do the openness and confession and the healing of one another within the group. That's your personal rule of life. What am I going to contribute in my community? Then discover purpose. Graduate growth track to discover more about our unique mission as a church. We're starting step one again today. If you're called to partner with us and God on the mission that we're on and the unique way God equipped you to do that. That's what going through Discover Your Purpose and Growth Track is meant to start. It's just a spark. It is not a full-out program. 
but it's meant to start you on that way. And then finally, make a difference. Through regular service on the dream team and serve teams and giving financially, you're able to make a difference in the world here, in the world around you, and the world beyond. And I think right here, I'm going to pause for a moment and let Renee and Memo come up and share. We have uh, Renee and Memo are here. They're missionaries. They used to go to this church years ago, and they're missionaries and have an orphanage with how many kids now? 25 kids in Mexico, and we support them. So just share a little bit about what God's doing. Hi, everyone. Um, for the, those of you that are new, Memo and I, um, in 2011, we developed a company, a nonprofit company that was Our Surrendered Lives Ministries. And in um, 2015, we moved to Mexico. Um, and in 2016, we got our first children. So we have had um, children for six years. This December will be seven. And um, <coughs> we're still growing. We're still um, building. And eventually God has spoken to Memo that th this house will hold 50 children. Wow, he's right. <laughs> uh, I was going to say the, the first song that we had was Joy in Chaos. That is our mantra. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a very hard job, but it's a very rewarding job. But I, I don't want you to think for one second that it's easy or that um, you have to be special to do it. You just have to be willing. And I know there's many times I feel very, very unprepared um, for the trauma that I see, I encounter. But God gives you everything you need in that moment. And so... We run on his grace, on his goodness, and we run because you guys support us. You pray for us, and we feel that. I mean, there's times when we are down to the last penny or less, and somebody provides, and it's God's people for providing for God's people. Whether it's money, whether it's prayer, whether you're coming to see us. You know, we have missionaries that are coming. We invite you to come down here. Our, you're our home church. You're, you know, it's, it's spirited from this church. And so we invite you to come down and see what you're investing in. Because these children's lives are changing. And we see some big changes. And we just thank you. And they pray for you. They pray for you. We have orphans in Mexico who are bowing their heads. Two and three-year-olds who will say, thank you, God, for giving us people in the United States who will help us provides they pray for you so think about that when you're in your prayer praying for them and uh, we thank you so much for letting us be here for letting us be a part of our church we will always come back here as a part of our church um, we thank you if nothing else pray that that prayer for us and we would love to see children thank you so much My children's pastor always used to ask all of her kids in children's church to pray for her because she said the prayers of children were the most powerful. I remember all of us huddling around our children's pastor. She'd just be there crying while all of the children were praying. So that's awesome. I love that. Um, but making a difference, we can 
do that in so many different ways. And whether that's um, giving or praying for our surrendered lives, whether that's helping to open the door and give a warm welcome on Sunday mornings to people, whether that's rocking babies in the nursery. I know I really appreciate the people in the nursery, so I am not dealing with a running around very talkative toddler on Sunday mornings. Whatever it is, that makes a difference. I just want to really shout out real quick the nursery workers because you might think you're not making a difference because you're not necessarily teaching or anything like that, but it lets parents come in here and receive. It really does. So taking care of the littles really makes a difference. And even if you take that time rocking and praying over those kids in their life, that makes a huge difference. And I covet those prayers over my children. Anyway, moving on. On a personal level, few people have a conscious plan for developing their, their spiritual lives. Most Christians are not intentional, but rather we function like cars on autopilot. You know, whatever we don't be intentional about, someone else will for us. Whether it's through algorithms online or marketing or your calendar. If you're not intentional about your calendar, someone else will plan your day for you. It'll, Netflix could plan your day for you. Are you still watching this? Next up, suggestions, top ten watched. They're planning your day for you. Or someone else is filling up your calendar because you don't have any structure or boundaries. But we come to church Sometimes and we interact with whatever's handed to us. Or we think that um, reading the Bible in the morning for a few minutes, attending church and small group weekly, giving money, praying at dinner, all of that stuff, we're for the most part just passive about it. We think we're being intentional, and sometimes those things are very intentional. But what are we giving and interacting with and engaging in in those things? Or are we just letting life happen to us instead of living it intentionally? The invitation of this message is to intentionally take one step to develop your own personal rule of life. And I've already given some examples of what, like what we do as a whole of a church and what that might look like on a personal level for you. But the key word is intentionality. It requires intentionality to anchor us in this pace that the world is going at so quickly. It's the beast of our 21st century world. And we're swimming against this really strong current, trying to make a difference without an anchor, and we have to have an anchor to come back to. It's almost impossible if we don't. Eventually, we find ourselves unfocused, distracted, and adrift spiritually. We wonder how we got to be distant, but it's because we never had something grounding us in the first place. We need to intentionally think through our own personal rules of life. For me, it's been life-changing. I really started I started dabbling in it last year, but this year I started really trying to hammer it home some things that I wanted to work on. I'm committed to Sabbath day for 24 hours once a week. I'm committed to worship, to nurturing my walk with Jesus through things like silence and solitude or praying through scripture. Um, I work on practicing the spiritual discipline of confession with some very close uh, sisters in Christ that I have. I'm much more aware of my limits because I have this anchor built. And I'm not perfect. I'm just starting it. It takes a while to train and build up discipline in something. But it's helped me to slow down against the culture and make room for what God wants to do in my life. So when we get started with this, it's important to look at the big picture. And I want to wrap up here, so I'm just going to read off a quick list of things that might be incorporated into your own uh, rule of life as you think about this as you pray over this 
Um, these are some things that could be incorporated. And you might want to start with one and get really good at it or get good at it for a long time before you add another thing in to be intentional about. Start slower and become really dedicated. Don't start too fast and then get distracted and fall off. But here are things. Uh, scripture. You may want to begin praying the Psalms or reading the Bible through in a year or begin meditating on Scripture each day. Silence and solitude. You may want to grow in taking two to five minutes a day to be in stillness before the Lord. Everyone on our Wednesday night classes is doing like eight minutes a day throughout the day of silence and stillness. And it is quite the task, let me tell you. But we're all working on it together. Um, or you could take a three-hour retreat once a month. Go away and just silence for three hours. Uh, prayer. You may want to begin a second midday prayer time between 11 and 2 each day over the next few months. These are just ideas on what you could do. Study. You may want to take a course at church or a nearby Bible school or commit yourself to read a Christian book every two months. I don't know if we have any nearby Bible schools. Hmm, this is a suggestion list that I'm going off of here. Uh, Sabbath, you may want to begin setting apart a 24-hour period to Sabbath. Highly recommend. It's very hard to do, but highly recommend trying to get started on it. This may be your year project, starting with a half day and then building up. Simplicity, maybe you want to remove distractions by downsizing your commitments or um, to be giving a percentage of your income like 5% and moving to a tithe of 10% to the church. Uh, play and recreation. This may include finding activities that breathe life in you. Some of you may take up a hobby like hiking, cooking, art, music, service, and mission. It may be time for you to step out and begin using your time or talents to serve others. Care for the physical body. This could begin be getting eight hours of sleep or exercising or shifting your diet or drinking more water. Emotional health. You may want to join a small group that deals with issues of mature relationships or find a mentor or begin journaling around losses you have not grieved well. You may want to find a counselor for a season. Family. This area concerns itself with growing in your marriage, parenting, your, your relation, um, if you're single, your relationships with the opposite sex. And finally, commun community, companions for your journey, your running partners that you may want to find a spiritual director, accountability group, or again, a mentor. Some of you will add different elements like hospitality. That's one of the ones that's on our list that we're working on, on a, as a household or delete others. The choice is yours. But the point is, what kinds of spiritual practices bring you closer to God, which drive you away from him? How can you discern the right combination for your particular makeup and your own rule of life? You may also want to learn more about these and pray about them and read about them, learn about them as you go. Be willing to make mistakes, try again, learn new things, and avoid any traces of legalism. This is about creating a loving union with you and God. One, maybe a couple final quotes from this conference and then we'll move into worship is, unless you can go ahead, come up. Um, John Mark Comer, again, my favorite speaker that was there. He talked about how Jesus said, my burden is easy, my yoke is light, lay down your heavy yoke and follow, or whatever, you know, I'm not quoting it right, but he said the yoke is just a symbolism of the weight of life. All of us have a weight of life that we're carrying. It's not something we do or don't have. That's not the option. We all have a weight, a burden, a yoke of life that we're carrying. So the option isn't no yoke or a yoke. The option is a heavy yoke, my burden by myself, 
or an easy yoke with Jesus helping me bear the weight. That's the option. When we develop something like a rule of life, it says, I'm going to bear the weight with Jesus. I'm not going to bear my heavy weight alone doing it my way. That is not working. I'm going to do it Jesus' way and share the easy, light yoke way of Christ with him. Benedict wrote 1,500 years ago, your way of acting should be different from the world's way. The love of Christ must come before all else. We need to keep that before us. What Jesus wants from us, what Jesus wants from us is just for us to be fully devoted to who he is. The Bible says in Chronicles, it says, he's searching the world to and fro to find someone whose heart is fully devoted to him. He's looking for us. He wants to do something. He wants to start revival. He wants to meet us where we're at. He wants to heal us, but he's looking for a heart that is fully devoted, not lukewarm, not distracted, not busy being a couch potato or a workaholic looking for someone with a heart fully devoted to him. One last quote from the conference this weekend. David Platt said, if God is the goal, then even the hard days are good days because the hard days bring us closer to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for what you're doing in and through our lives. Thank you that you established a way of life just by coming down here and living as a human on earth. We get to see the model of your life. And then these Christians that dedicated their lives to you and showed us a model. We can look to you and we can look to your followers who have done it so well and who have given their lives and have been fully devoted followers. I pray that you would stir it up in our hearts to be fully devoted to you, fully committed in everything, to give everything to you, that we know it's something that is worth the sacrifice, that we know, God, you are the goal. And if you're the goal, even the hard things, even the hard days are good things and good days, that it's okay to be disciplined and that you will save us from legalism, that we can enjoy the unforced rhythms of grace, that rhythms and routines aren't bad, but that it brings us closer to you to hear what you're doing when you're moving in the moment. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and touch hearts right now. Move in hearts. Holy Spirit, start stirring hearts right now. If there's something specific that you have for that, if our prayer teams could make their way up to the front, just to be available. Right now, I want you all with your heads bowed and eyes closed still to think about if you're feeling any sort of nudge from the Holy Spirit, if he's doing anything in you, if there was anything that struck a note in your heart, if there was anything like, oh, that one hurts a little better, oh, 